before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 93. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got uh, Keith Dicker here of IceCap Asset Management, Rich Diaz. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Rich, hey what's guys. going on? I'm, I'm back Mom? from the woods. I'm back from the woods. I spent six days up uh, in the, on my island. Sadly, I share this island with uh, like 25 other houses, but it was all, man, the water up there was amazing. There was very few bugs. Um, and yeah, I'm just very, I felt a lot of gratitude, a lot of gratitude. And I didn't chop off any limbs with my, with my chainsaw. So a success. How are you doing, Keith? So I grew up with chainsaws and stuff. I don't know. I did any <laughs> chopping with a chainsaw. You know, you could pull the cord and it'll cause it to start up. Yes, I don't thank you. That. Yeah. You know what I meant. I... <laughs> Is that how you got those arms? That, that sexy physique. That's right. The, uh, yeah. The dad this is ice cap. Lucky lady. <laughs> she's very lucky i spent at least a few minutes this week researching uh a panda's ass and the and the tail <laughs> oh yeah we mrs ice cap we had a lot of conversations about this and uh i think a lot of other of the the listeners last week did as well but rich came Those up with strange the sites part. you're visiting there right eh? <laughs> yeah i know ass.com panda porn it's it's weird but um it is a poof. You're right, Rich. Apparently, when they're born, their tail is kind of almost full size, but the panda gets bigger, but the tail sort of stops growing. And then after a while, it tends to do like a fold over or a curl. I don't know where it goes. Maybe it hides somewhere. But this it's, is, it's this is why you need to tune in every week. It's a poof. Just, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you never know what you might learn in the loony hour. That's right. You could learn a lot of things. What are you learning there, Steve? How's Kitslano? Uh, Kitsilano is the same, man. Not much is changing. We're Any big parties coming up next week in Kitsilano, maybe? Yeah, apparently there's a big party on July 27th. Big plug. Um, thanks for queuing me up there, Keith. Uh, Vancouver event. This is the final push. You'll, you won't have to hear me banter about the Vancouver event for at least another 12 months. Uh, but the Vancouver live event for the Looney Hour, we still got a few tickets left. Uh, almost sold out here in for july 27th next thursday in kitsilano the pride of kitsilano uh, at the hollywood theater so i think the doors open at six o'clock the event will go to roughly nine o'clock but uh drinks appetizers open bar live podcast q a come hang out have a good time uh next week so again there's going to be a link below uh, in the show notes to to get yeah, tickets on Eventbrite there. Uh, they're $49.99 ahead, and that includes a complimentary drink and obviously your appetizers as well. And um, what else? So not you? an open bar. <laughs> well, it's an open bar. It's a ca- sorry, it's a cash bar. It's, <laughs> okay, we just, we need it's a, a bar that's o- <laughs> so. Let to be clear, it's a bar oh, that's that open to buy a drink. I think that's okay, why. Just, yeah, we need a, we need a few more sponsors. <clears throat> yeah, and and, the, and there's AC, but I think right? It's five, 
but it's an additional five dollar add-on if you want to kiss rich so no sure i i do not consent to this we need to that <laughs> option the loony hour needs as many funds as they can get that's right all right we've talked we about the off we can talk about that all, offline send me a dm <laughs> slide into um, my dms <laughs> but also for those that are listening here um we do also have we actually just we announced it last week but the calgary event as well so that's going to be like two days later on saturday july 29th the boys are making a road trip uh out to uh god's country there in calgary alberta and uh, we've rented out the Inglewood Lawn Bowling Center. Uh, so we've got the whole whole lawn bowling facility. There's going to be uh, that one will literally be open bar. So we're getting a big cooler of beer and and whatever else floats your boat. I'm sure Keith will have some nice pinots uh, flowing and uh, you will know, we'll have some food and, and do some lawn bowling and just hang out. There won't be a live podcast. It'll just be uh, just a great time to come and meet and just, ask just questions think. and hang out. If we added like a, a pickleball court with the lawn bowling, like we'd be the coolest guys out west. <laughs> Just uh, well, leaking. Can we actually? Stuff. Sorry, I didn't read any of the emails around this. Can we actually lawn bowl? Is there actually going to be some yeah, lawn bowling? It's a lawn bowling center. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought that was just like a. No, it's like legit. It's the. I mean, if you're from Calgary, you probably know it's the Inglewood Lawn Bowling Center. We've okay. rented out the entire venue, so. Um, if you're from Calgary and older than 60, you might know of it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's kind of had a resurgence here in Vancouver. But anyways, the capacity there is 60 people. So like our, we've almost sold out our tickets. So like if you're listening to this episode, uh, you might want to act quick on the Calgary tickets for sure. Because those are those are going to be gone here probably the next couple of days. Um, but yeah, other than that. You know, we've got a special guest uh, for this week's, um, you know, Rich has been salivating here to get this guy on. Um, Rich, he's a, he's a friend of yours, no? He is a friend of mine. I met him. Uh, one of the only good things to come out of my time in Halifax was hanging out with Keith, um, meeting the people who made my website. Shout out to Brandon and Nick and uh, meeting Dave Rabson, who you will introduce shortly, uh, who's just um, who. Well, I don't want to usurp your little thing there, but anyway, yeah, he's great. He's he's a really really smart and pragmatic individual, and I'm really I think we're lucky to have him on, to be honest. So uh, yeah, can't wait to can't wait to speak to him. Yeah, so David actually works for the Dallas Fed, the Federal Reserve. We apparently cannot ask him questions about uh, his projection for the future of interest rate hikes and whatnot. However, uh, at the Fed, his specific role is in studying, basically just sits there and studies the energy transition, uh, particularly how it rate relates to transportation. Uh, so I think this is a really good conversation uh, just around, you know, electric vehicles, you know, Canada's got, what does Canada got this 2030 ambition for like all new car sales have to be electric. So we're going to get into that and really the, the feasibility of these projections and goals and ambitions and, and uh, fairy tales. So um, we'll have David on here on the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Just uh, yeah, quick little recap here. So Professor David Rapson is the, is the economics department at the University of California, Davis, and an economic policy advisor and senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. He's an expert on energy markets and climate policy with a recent focus on electric vehicles and transportation decarbonization uh, here in degrees from Dartmouth College, Queens University, Boston University, and uh, so welcome to the Looney Hour, David. I'm a longtime listener, apparently. I'm so I'm so I'm told. Hey, I've been on the other end since the beginning. Yeah, it was. Uh, I met Rich just shortly before you guys launched this thing, and I, I think what you're doing is fantastic. And I try to try to tune in every week, and uh, 
you know, one of the things I know is how much Rich struggles with acronyms. So I, <laughs> I put together a little uh, spreadsheet for him here with some uh, with a cheat sheet. So I'm going to email this to you later, Rich, so that you can uh, you can always have at your fingertips what Jolts is. Thank you. That's yeah, anyone that's watching on YouTube, you'll uh, you'll you'll see David's background here. So that's uh, great, greatly needed, greatly appreciated. Um, but you know, part of what makes the show tick is really being able to bring on. Uh, you know, outside experts in in their various fields to really provide some additional context uh, to Canadians here. So obviously, we appreciate it. Uh, we know that you work at the Dallas Fed, so please tell us when the next rate uh, cut will be, <laughs> and uh, we'll start there. Yeah, actually, uh, I should jump in. They 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 do force me to. Uh, there are two things. One is I have to give a disclaimer that none of the views that I'm expressing here are necessarily the views of the Dallas Fed or the Fed system. But also we're part we're in the middle of a blackout period now. So, you know, we're going to stick completely to non-monetary policy issues. Uh, and to be honest, that's all you want to hear from me anyway, because what I study is the energy transition. Yeah. So no, Dave, just, when, just bugging you. So Dave ahead, when, do they, when do they buy the stocks and sell them then? Is it during the blackout <laughs> period or after? I get confused. Are we allowed to take the fifth in Canada? I think so. Oh, Come on, you're it. getting my buddy in trouble. That's not nice. No, no, <laughs> no. Be no. Nice, Steve. Rich, Rich, uh, I'm, I know you're probably just itching here with a whole bunch of questions. You've been all over the... Uh, ESG oh. movement, let's call it. Um, you know, there's, there's. I mean, Canada's very, very vocal about their, their, their thoughts and feelings towards the climate and the ESG and, and all these wild ambitions. So, I would love for you to sort of maybe tee, tee up a few questions here. Yeah, sure. So, I think first, let, Dave, uh, before we get into sort of the the nitty gritty, can you just sort of tell us? <laughs> What is it you do, um, just for our listeners to sort of contextualize it, uh, both at, at school, because uh, you're a professor, so from now on I'll have to call you Professor Dave, and uh, also with the Dallas Fed, um, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. Well, so I've been, at, I've been at UC Davis as a professor for 15 years now, and there we basically teach and do research. And the main thing that, that you know, our, our bread is buttered by doing research, which is just trying to advance what we know about the world. And what I study is how consumers and firms respond to incentives, and particularly in the context of the energy sector. And of course, you know, one, one of the motivating factors for me in getting into that in the first place was that climate change, you know, even when I was in my PhD, you know, 20 years ago now, which is insane to think about, uh, the, you know, climate change was a big issue, and it was clear it was going to be an issue for our entire lifetime. And so I saw an opportunity to do some research taking the, the great tools, the, the empirical tools in economics and applying them to topics that relate to climate change. And so, you know, that's kind of taken me down this road. Recently, I've been studying a lot about electric vehicles and, you know, I, I, we're going to get into some of the policies that have been implemented around the world uh, to try to fight climate change. And the incentives that are created by these policies, those are what I study. And that's why I have kind of strong views about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the prospects for these policies. And, uh, and, and, and I wish that we were doing some, some other things because what we're doing right now is setting up the wrong in incentives. And yeah, so the, the Federal Reserve, of course, you know, it has a dual mandate. 
uh, of um, uh, of keeping inflation at two percent and maximizing employment. And you know, as part of this, one of the one of the banks in particular, the Dallas Fed, has an energy group because the energy sector is very important, just directly to the uh, economy in the 11th district. But also, you know, it's just an input to everything that we do. And they have, you know, an amazing group around oil and gas there. But obviously, there's this aspiration to move towards other energy sources. And they brought me in to essentially lead that effort to, to think more about, you know, the integration of renewables and electrification and how that's going to affect the economy. So that, that's basically uh, the world that I'm kind of playing in. Sorry to end the show. Just want to remind you guys, the Looney Hour live event in Vancouver is taking place July 27th at the Hollywood Theater in Kitsilano. He's a favorite spot. Come hang out with us on July 27th for food, drinks, live podcasts, Q&A pictures questions all the good stuff there is a eventbrite link in the show notes below where you can get uh, your hands on some tickets looking forward to seeing you all there and we appreciate your support do you have a question or can i go no rich <laughs> fire away buddy i know you're just okay. itching over there okay so. cool so all right so like a lot of the issues that i have are basically the fantasiful ideas and targets that are set up for us um you know this is from a layman's perspective i think a lot of the stuff is basically I basically BS to be polite, to be impolite. But really, I think it's it's really that it's 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 misleading because when you can't be honest about sort of the importance of oil and gas in our economy day to day, then I don't think you can have a, a real sort of viable path to that transition. So how real like, first of all, how would you define as like an academic define transitions? And then sort of can you elaborate a little bit on how realistic those transitions are, and then maybe as after we're done, we can talk more about specifics about electric vehicles and 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 that kind of stuff, if that's okay. Yeah, and I'd also like to add, just like you know, to segue from that is getting into some of the Canadian policies. Yeah, of course. Um, and and perhaps some of your feedback on that. So, um, yeah. So when, I think when people talk about the energy transition today, they're they're talking about decarbonization and uh, you know terms like net zero by 2050 are gonna are, are gonna pop up. And there the the centerpiece of this is the idea that we're going to um, you know get rid of all the fossil generation on the electric grid uh, and we're going to shift all of our energy uses to, uh, or most of our energy uses to what would then be green electricity. Of course, it's more complicated than that. There are other sectors that probably aren't going to be electrified. And there you've got other things like biofuels and hydrogen. And, uh, you know, so, so it's not quite as simple. But I think when people talk about the energy transition, you know, electrification is a centerpiece of that. And there is this, uh, you know, narrative that we need to go net zero, uh, in order to keep temperatures below 1.5 degree uh, increase uh, by, you know, in, in this century. And this is, um, you know, I think uh, maybe zooming out a little bit, because I, I don't want to fully, uh, you know, th th there are really good intentions behind these these policies. And I think they're, they're also a counterbalance to what has really been denialism from the right for a really long time. And I think there was in the, it, there seemed to me to be a really, big shift that happened you know, around 2015, maybe it was around when Trump got into office, 
Um, certainly, you know, the, the cap and trade bill failing in the US, uh, you know, in, in 2010 was a big deal for environmentalists. And, and they started essentially, you know, doing a couple of things. One is attacking the fossil fuel industry with much more directness and kind of vilifying them, turning them into kind of the, the face of the, of the enemy of, of climate progress. Um, which I, I think we should touch on that a little bit because, you know, we all consume the product. We need the products that they're, they're producing. So while, while there's some truth to them being like at the core of uh, producing these, these emissions, uh, we also need them to, to flourish as an economy. Uh, and that's, you know, in Canada, that's particularly true, uh, but just e everywhere that, that's true. So, uh, you know- It's also this particularly ironic, sorry to interrupt you, it's also particularly ironic because I'm of the view that natural gas killed coal and natural gas is one of the main reasons why the US has been able to cut their carbon emissions as much as they have over the last 20 years or so. I mean, am I off base on that? No, the best thing to ever happen to, to carbon emissions reductions in the U.S. is natural gas. There's no question about that. Yeah, coal to gas switching was, you know, produced enormous benefits. And, and by the way, those weren't that didn't happen because of any environmental advocacy. That happened because the economics behind natural gas were superior to the economics behind coal. Yeah, OK. Um, can we talk about some of the um, underappreciated costs of full or even deep electrification. If that sounds like it's been well written, it's because I ripped it off your abstract. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I guess so. I was trying to think about how to be concise because I could go on, you know, at length about all all of these these topics. But I think the first thing that we want to just hold as a guiding principle for everything when we're talking about the energy transition, we need to acknowledge that the primary benefits. Uh, from consuming energy are, are tremendous in our economy. So, you know, right now we're getting a lot of those benefits by burning fossil fuels and fossil fuels are actually great in lots of ways. They're, they're cheap, they're abundant, ubiquitous, transportable, energy dense, but they have this really thorny problem that they contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. But really what we're thinking, what we should be thinking about in the energy transition is weighing the benefits of these uh, energy sources against the pollution costs. And we, if all we're trying to do is get rid of these energy sources, then we really, I think, risk getting rid of, all, like eliminating all those benefits as well as eliminating the costs. And I think that that would be, you know, a big mistake. And so in the paper that you're talking about, this is, we call this paper, the electric ceiling. And it's, we're just discussing the idea that, you know, there are all these aspirations uh, about going 100% electric. And uh, we are concerned that, you know, when you try to do 100% anything, at some point, the marginal costs of going further are going to increase at some, you know, potentially dramatic rate. And, you know, we care about energy reliability. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about getting rid of the, the energy sources, you can turn on and off, which are essentially coal and natural gas and some damned hydro, and replacing those with energy sources that, you know, are only producing when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, uh, reliability is going to be a major concern. Um, can I ask another question? So um, we've been told that that transition would be costless, painless. In fact, if we did this, then candy canes and lollipops would rain down from the sky and everybody would be a millionaire. And I mean, is that an effective strategy from a policy standpoint to basically lie about the pain? I mean, I'm using the word lie. You don't have to use that word. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just I feel like there's been a real sort of 
misalignment of the the costs that are going to effectively have to deal with. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I I've often I've been thinking about why that argument is so common out there. And there's this there's this way that we measure the kind of average cost uh, of each different electricity generation source, and it's called the levelized cost. And it is true that when you take that, and I'm not going to bore all your listeners with the details there, but when you take that narrow measure, which is kind of the average cost of producing a kilowatt hour over the life cycle of that technology, you know, solar and wind perform very, very well by that measure. And I think that has caused advocates of, you know, this big renewable transition to say, hey, it's cheaper. And in that measure, it is. But that measure ignores the fact that sun is only producing, you know, solar is only producing when the sun is shining. And we also have to build a lot of transmission lines uh, to bring that energy uh, into the market. And those transmission lines are really hard to build and very expensive. Maybe maybe it's easier in Canada because there's just such an abundance of land. But in the U.S., you know, there was a paper that just came out uh, with the title Transmission Impossible, uh, you know, trying to understand great title <laughs> uh, thanks i actually came up with it over beers for the author very good title <laughs> i got a question for you actually on um just on i know like you know we talk about like electric vehicles and um windmills wind turbines and all that other stuff but is there any in terms of like you know climate change and its impact on the climate is there any discussion or analysis around the impact of all these precious metals that you have to mine and, and, and how intensive that is. Like I, I, I just, I mean, I'm asking more so like, okay, if we go all electric vehicles, like, you know, you know, you need all that battery power and all the precious metals that go into that. It, it seems very intensive. It is intensive. And I think this is a completely valid concern. I I'm actually less concerned about that than a lot of people are because, you know, as we start building a lot more electric vehicles and lithium becomes scarce and nickel or whatever, you know, copper, the, all the inputs that we're going to need, as they become scarce, the price is going to go up. And when the price goes up, two things happen. People who are using those inputs are going to look for alternatives that are cheaper. And people who produce those inputs are going to try to figure out new ways that maybe at low prices were not economical to extract those, those sources of supply. But now at these high prices, they're going to go and figure out new ways to get, to get this resource. You know, we've seen time and time again, you know, oil is a great example of this. You, you guys might have, particularly Keith, you've been, you've been hearing about peak oil probably since you were, you know, a toddler in elementary school, you know, the, the, the idea that we were going to run out of oil has been around, you know, forever. It's kind of this Malthusian view that, hey, we've only got a certain amount of oil, you know, in the world. And at current supplies, if we continue on this consumption path, we're going to exhaust the entire supply in 30 years or whatever it is. But what happens every single time is, you know, as we become see scarcity in that market, the price skyrockets, and we figure out new ways to frack, to do offshore, you know, drilling. And we're just really, really good at following economic incentives and creating supply when something we need becomes really expensive. I think that's going to happen for these minerals. But, you know, a lot of this activity is concentrated in China, too. There are geopolitical things. It's, it's complicated. But I'm less pessimistic about that than some others. The the exception that proves the rule, of course, to this uh, supply coming on when prices go up is Canadian housing. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> um, so can I ask you just a couple more questions? And I'm, I'm sorry, Keith and Steve, just interrupt me if if I've gone on too much. But um, so you 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 talk about two risks um, that 
that you said, can you can you elaborate on the risks to policies that move us to this 100% target? I think you identified two risks. I'm sure there are more, but do you, do you just just to be sort of just getting closer to more your your sort of expertise. So, I mean, I th I think there are a few. So I'm not sure which two exactly. You're oh, thinking. sorry. You said the first is to drive up mind. the electricity costs. The so one is they drive up electricity costs, and then the second is the, the they foreclose on opportunities to be more efficient. But I didn't really understand the first, and I think people will be interested in in the in the second. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm glad I asked you which two because immediately, like other I, <laughs> other <laughs> more than two. But so let's start with the high costs. You know, one of the big things about electrification is you know we're moving from a very efficient market to a heavily regulated market. Now, why is that? It's because in oil and gas, you know, let's say, let's talk about gasoline because really we're, you know, in this paper, we're talking about electrification. You know, you've got all these producers and distributors and sellers of, of gasoline and, and, you know, oil products, and they're competing with each other. And when things get scarce, you know, the, the price is basically going to follow the scarcity in the market. That doesn't happen with electricity. And the reason is because electricity has big components of natural monopoly in that industry. We only want one electric grid. So, you know, we basically have to either regulate it, or I guess the alternative is we let some monopoly company charge whatever they want, but then we'd pay, be paying 10 times as much for electricity. So we regulate this industry. And one of the biggest challenges is, uh, is recovering the enormous fixed costs of maintaining and building all the transmission lines and the distribution infrastructure that takes it to our home. So when you pay, I, I don't know what you're paying rich for electricity, but let's say it's 15 cents a kilowatt hour, Probably. Rich, rich list with his mom, so he doesn't pay anything <laughs> for electricity. So, so probably like your mom is probably paying four cents a kilowatt hour for the energy and 11 cents to pay off all these fixed costs. And okay. so when, you know, and this gets back to the, you know, the levelized cost thing I mentioned earlier, when what we're doing is bring on a lot of low marginal cost production to the market, we still need to recover all the fixed costs. Like yeah. think about a big solar farm, you know, once you've built it, you're getting electricity for free on the margin, but you had to spend a lot to build that farm, you need to right. recover those costs. So that's what we're concerned about is, you know, when we move to this, uh, to, to this renewables, you know, only grid, you're going to need to pay all the fixed costs, you're going to probably need a lot of uh, expensive electricity storage, which by the way, is a technology that we're not really good at. We don't have grid scale storage right now um, for, you know, for electricity. And so yeah, we're concerned about the cost going up and potentially dramatically. And by the way, in the places that have really taken, you know, the renewables revolution seriously, here I'm thinking Germany, uh, California, Hawaii, we've all got really, really high electricity prices. And blackouts and rolling blackouts in California, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, reliability is an issue as well. And, you know, I'm not going to just blame renewables for that. I, I think that it's, you know, there's a lot of other things. But I, the second cost, Rich, and sorry, I'm talking a lot here. So No, no, go for it. That's what you're here for. You're, 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 <laughs> your time will be up soon enough. And then, but we're happy to have you. Thank you. So the second cost that uh, that you you know wanted me to talk about is this opportunity cost of foregone innovation, and I, I'm really concerned that people don't understand this. In, in particular, the people who are, who are pushing these policies very strongly. And the idea is pretty simple. You know, we currently don't have the technology that we need 
to decarbonize at low cost. Like we've got, we're, we're going to face really stark trade-offs about cost and decarbonization. Um, we already are, but it's, it's only going to get even, even more stark. And if our policy today is, hey, let's electrify, let's take these, these technologies that we, that we, that exist today and go all in on those technologies, then that reduce, dramatically reduces the incentive for entrepreneurs and investors to go out and spend money on alternatives, which, you know, if we were not indicating that everything's going to be electric in 20 years, you know, maybe we'd have lots of entrepreneurs, more entrepreneurs thinking about hydrogen or, um, you know, different you know, hyper fuel efficient cars. Yeah, what, what whatever it is, any and 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 the point is, we need more humility. Like the fact, you know, we don't know what those technologies might be, but we are foreclosing uh, investments in those. And and I think that the you know we're never going to know the size of those costs because we're never going to see you know that alternate state of the world where where you know we didn't indicate we're going to go all electric. But I, I'm really concerned about that. And by the way, you know, like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. Put, you know, directed billions of dollars towards investments in all sorts of different technologies. That's not the same thing because, you know, maybe they're not pulling the lever in the right, right amount. We need market forces to be helping us to direct capital uh, in, in, in this transition. And if we don't do that, it's going to be really, really expensive. And probably we're not going to get as much uh, carbon abatement as we want. David, you're the, um, you're the, Prime Minister of Canada, you know what you know about you know energy and the transition and whatnot. As Prime Minister of Canada, what would you do? You're running this country. What what's your what's your stance? What's your policy? Well, my bosses at the Fed would fire me if I answered that question directly. But, <laughs> but well, then at but, least tell us if they're going to raise rates next but, month. <laughs> but let me let me but but let me just talk in broad strokes because you know uh, Canada is is electrification in Canada is going to be cheaper than elsewhere because there's just so much hydro. So, you know, Canada has a huge advantage in terms of, you know, decarbonizing the grid. There are challenges in places like where, where Keith is, where I'm from in Halifax, where, you know, there's just a lot of coal on the grid. Um, they need to figure out how to get, um, you know, renewable electricity or non-coal electricity to Nova Scotia. Um, but, you know, it's small and it doesn't, doesn't really matter all that much in the end. But um, so I think we, you know, Canada really should, should be pressing that advantage. And the other advantage that Canada definitely needs to, to press is its, uh, its fossil resources. I mean, these two things can coexist at the same time. Uh, I, you know, that, that Rich keeps posting this chart that says, you know, we're basically selling, you know, fossil fuels to fund everything else in the Canadian economy. And he's right about that. And, you know, uh, if there's, you know, some fantasy world where Canada just stops uh, producing oil, all of a sudden Canada becomes way less wealthy and, uh, and, you know, the standard of living declines dramatically. And, and by the way, the opportunities to invest in and leverage the, the high human capital of the Canadian population to like help find solutions to climate change uh, degrades as well in, in that world. So, you know, we, uh, and this brings me maybe to like, the, la the last big, big thing that I really want to leave all, all your listeners is what happens in Canada and even the US and Europe, it doesn't really matter in terms of decarbonization. It matters a bit, but what really matters is the developing world, which is much bigger and which is growing both in population and in uh, 
and and in uh, economic uh, economic growth, and they're going to be demanding uh, energy services. And so, you know, if we just fix using very expensive technologies, our carbon problem in you know in the rich world, uh, that's not going to solve climate change. We still have to fix it there. So that, so so I think you know there, I'm pretty sure we're going to see a lot of consumption of oil and gas over the coming decades. And, uh, you know, the, the main problem is, is how, you know, how we figure out how to decouple um, decarbonization and growth for these developing economies. Was it coal usage at a record high last year? No, I think that might be true. Yeah. I mean, it certainly, it certainly rebounded a lot because, um, you know, because it was cheaper than natural gas and natural gas spiked. Keith, I think you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I have a question, and it's, it's sort of like a panda in the room kind of question, but it's not directly related to, to China. Um, you know, like, you know, for us, I mean, we're, we're money managers, and it, it's the guys would tell you, I'm skeptical about a lot of things, and that's how you make money in, in markets. You know, you could be a contrarian sometimes, but I'm just curious, so whenever I see there's so much, you know, excuse the pun, but energy invested by governments and policymakers completely in one direction, which is this climate change theme they're going down. And it's my understanding there is not a lot of opportunity to have the opposite conversation. Say, hey, maybe this, because you mentioned before specifically, you said the opportunity cost with doing this, uh, you know, a lot of these policies are being pushed very aggressively. So, I mean, that tells me that, you know, maybe it is not the optimal road that we're going down. Because as you know, in the US, just the private sector itself, you know, helped to really, you know, reduce pollution. That, that's what we're talking about here. And is the opportunity there at, at the Fed or in other levels of, of governments or any groups that you're speaking with, and especially in the Western world, to take the opposite view and said, you know what, we can't affect this one and a half degree rise in temperature, whether it's starting at this point or, or that point. But it just seems to us as investment managers, it's gone straight down that road. You're not allowed to question it. Like Rich brings up the ESG stuff quite a bit as well. And right now, the markets are starting to understand and appreciate, and that's not really quite working. So I think the risk that we do have is that entire theme towards, you know, we we can change the weather by doing this, this or that, or climate story. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, poke that much of a hole in it. Um, again, like it's the conversation to say, you know what, we made a bit of a mistake because here in Canada for Canadians, we, we have to take the, you know, the climate change tax and our gasoline, um, you know, LNG ports, forget it. You know, they're not going online anytime soon. And as you know, all that would do would help reduce the, you know, the consumption of coal in, in China and India, things like that. So, I mean, I think you understand my question. A lot of people listening to the podcast might be saying, Hey, like, why isn't that other conversation allowed? And and then the other big question for you is, and I think a lot of people, I know why you guys are doing this work, of course, to try to understand the impact on the economy. But is central bank policy really going to be tweaked because of what we're discovering with with this trend, or is it still just focusing on you know the broad measures? Sorry to interrupt the show again. I just wanted to make a big announcement here for our Calgary listeners. We are coming to Calgary on Saturday, July 29th. We have rented out the Inglewood Lawn Bowling Center. If you want to come hang out with Keith, 
Rich, and myself. We have rented out the entire Inglewood Lawn Bowling Center. 20 bucks gets you admission, unlimited drinks, including booze, food, pizza, etc. It's going to be a great time. Kind of come and go as you please, but we're going to hang out in the sun, have some drinks, and do some lawn bowling. It's going to be a great time. So if you're in Calgary and you're a fan of the Looney Hour, come to our social event on Saturday, July 29th. There's tickets below in the show notes where you can get those tickets. Again, 20 bucks gets you in. Unlimited booze. Going to be a great time. We'll see you there. With your first question, um, I, this debate has obviously gotten polarized, just like everything else in our uh, in our kind of political lives. And I don't think that's healthy because uh, I, you know, I, I think there's a real role for for conservatives to be pushing market based policies as you know as a a really important uh, uh, element to to the policy policy mix. It's it's not you know if we get a carbon tax, that's not <clears throat> that's not going to be enough. We need more than just a carbon tax, but we probably do need a carbon tax. And my personal opinion is that if that happens, it's going to happen because conservatives have uh, you know I, I'm talking in the U.S. now because I know in you know in Canada there there's there's been much uh, much stronger policy in that way. But in the U.S., I think that would be a Republican policy. Um, and, you know, I, I it, right now, their party isn't isn't really interested in kind of engaging uh, in, in that way. Um, and yeah, the polarization, I think is is a big problem. And I mean, listen, I don't have a I don't have an answer to the to that deep kind of polarization of the of society question, except to say that I think if you're on the left, make friends with people on the right and start talking with them and same like right to left. I, I think we, you know, the fact that we're not talking across these po political lines is leading to this kind of, uh, you know, uh, all or nothing on one side or the other view. And, you know, right now, um, I think you're right that, that, that the people on the left are pushing these particular policies. And I, and I think, um, they're doing it with good intentions, but uh, it's, I think it's more complicated than those policies, I think, uh, reveal. And yeah, I, I don't know, Keith, it's a very unsatisfying answer to that question. I, I'm sorry, but it's, I think you're, you're cutting to just like the heart of kind of society's issues right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's tricky because you know, we have a lot of, lot of listeners in, in Alberta, as an example. And like these are the kind of conversations that that take place. But regardless, like even if, if it's not climate change or, or something else, uh, you know, you're you're basically a, a you're a scientist. Your data analysis is that's science as well. And I love it when you're able to see a, a very good debate about this conversation, as opposed to like this is the launch point that we're starting with, and. Let's find a solution to a problem when maybe the, the problem can't be solved. Maybe it's just, hey, let the private sector become more efficient in their ways. It's just an observation. And it, it's something that, you know, I, I think this will turn uh, at some point and whether it's you know, market driven or driven by something else. But it's it, we like, as you said, Dave, we the, the conversations need to take place. So hopefully that will begin. Can it, Rich, Keith, can just I to just, add, sorry. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I just want to, I'm hearing a little bit in your question of like, hey, maybe we just should like 
you know, give up because we're doing all these things that are, you know, maybe don't pass the cost benefit. I just have to say, like, I, I think both morally and economically that 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 wouldn't be uh, the right thing, the right thing to do. I think that we are seeing and are going to continue to see accelerating climate damages. I'm not one of these climate catastrophists out there. Like, I, I, I it really bothers me when people talk about this as, you know, a uh, existential, what, what's the, uh, a mass extinction event or like, the, you know, that type of, of extreme language. I Like, come on, we're really great at adapting, but at the same time, you know, the damages are going to be enormous. Sea levels are going to rise. And, uh, and the, the, the hardest hit people in the world are going to be really poor people in like Bangladesh. And, you know, it's, I, we should care about this. Like we kind of cause this problem. We need to help, help to fix it. So I think there is a moral obligation, but I think you don't even need to feel that moral obligation to, uh, you know, have significant climate policy past the cost benefit test from a pro like an economic perspective. The, the difficulty is the collective action problem. But th that's where I'd like to jump in because I think, you know, to dovetail off of both of what you guys said, one, it keeps point, which I think is valid, which is there's only one way to solve this solution, this problem. Whether or not you think the problem is, exists, frankly, is irrelevant. We are being told there's only one way to solve the problem. And I submit to you as a piece of evidence, in Germany, they just shut down six perfectly good nuclear power plants. And if you care about the, the environment and you're unwilling to mitigate those costs, that is insane. And and that and until basically last weekend, I'm, I'm joking, of course, nuclear power was unpopular, even though it's been around for 70 years. And you know, the French have been doing it forever. And if the French can do it, you know what I mean? Like, so this idea that you can only solve this major problem one way is, I think, just is, is, is I think it, we're being told that. And I think it's ridiculous. So your point, I think, Keith's point, I think, has some validity to it. The second thing, just on what you're saying, Dave, is this Malthusian concept. And it's like related to, I think it's related to net zero. It's about this degrowth you know, you talked about words that I that you don't like. I think climate nihilism is something that we're seeing, where people don't want to have children, you know, people, you know, all this stuff. And I just think, how do you, from an economist's perspective, deal with this Malthusian trap? This guy just, this guy, first of all, can you explain who Malthus was? And then can you explain why he just won't go away? <laughs> yeah, so Thomas Malthus basically had the idea that, you know, as we expand the population of the earth, the, the fixed land and other resources on the earth are going to be, you know, split between an ever growing number, and that at some point, we're not going to be able to sustain, uh, sustain ourselves in that population. This has been a very popular idea as we have grown to, you know, 8 billion people on, on, the, on the planet. So um, I, I guess what what I would love to, you know, you should put put this in your in in, in your show notes. Um, I I think everyone should watch the twenty minute Steven Pinker talk on progress. This is from I think twenty eighteen, and he asked the question, "Are we making progress as humankind?" And he says, "Well, how would we measure pro progress?" And he comes up with like all these different things that might indicate like if they're getting better, that we're making progress as, as a society. And on literally every single one, like we're safer, we're, we're not exposed to as much risk of dying. We're, uh, you know, we've automated all these things that we used to put a lot of effort into doing in our daily lives. You know, women are, are much better off in society than they ever have been in history. We are literacy. He just goes through all these things. We're better off in every single way, except climate. 
you know, climate or the, the, the pollution situation is, is getting worse. And you know what? We should try to take some of those resources, that abundance that we're seeing in, in literally every other aspect of, of life and redirect some of it towards fixing this difficult problem. Oh, and the, the biggest one that I think is like a, a moral boon to, to uh, society and frankly to, to capitalism is that extreme poverty has declined by 75% in the world since the mid-1980s. It's gone down from 30% of the Earth's population to something like, you know, 7%. Or I, you know, I might be getting these numbers a little bit wrong, but we like what we're doing is creating, you know, a lot of, of thriving, like great lives uh, com as compared to any other time in history. And you know, we should hold on to that, and we should we should seek to channel some of that abundance towards fixing this other major problem. Yeah, I think this has been a really good, like, balanced conversation balanced views which yeah i think is is appreciated and, and much needed because as we talked about in the show is we tend to get this very uh politicized polarizing views of right versus left and and really not a lot of, of balance in between the middle so we do you know certainly appreciate that we've only got a few more minutes with you so we kind of you know if you guys have any final questions you know let's let's jam them in but i i have one which is i think in you know getting back to canadian policy i think like one of the policies, I believe, is they said, you know, by 2030, we want all new vehicle sales in Canada to be electric. And now I'm kind of curious, just obviously, this is something that you study on a day to day basis. Is that is that realistic? Is that feasible? What's what's your take on that? I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that they could like they could kind of change the rules to make it look like to to, to declare success. For example, they could like call hybrid vehicles um electric vehicles or they can you know not bicycles <laughs> yeah or, or or allow people to still like go down to you know to michigan and buy a car and bring it back and you know they're if they end up claiming success it's because they have indulged in many pressure relief valves and redefining what success means uh, there, there's no way uh, there's no way that 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 that's going to happen. Why? Sorry, just quickly, why? Oh well, I, I mean, the <laughs> that, that's a great question. I think because a lot of people don't want electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are currently very expensive, um, you know. And electric vehicle advocates would say, well, not when you in account for the life cycle of the vehicle. And I think you know, in some cases, that's true. But you know, in a place like Canada, where the where the weather is really cold, like battery uh, performance is degraded substantially in very cold weather. So, you know, the range is going to be an issue. I, it, there are all sorts of things that all would have to, you know, resolve favorably for electric vehicles um, for that to happen. And in that time frame, it's just like, I would bet a lot of money uh, against <laughs> that happening. By 2030, give me a break. There's a few stocks you can short, actually, if you want to do that. <laughs> Did you guys have any final questions? I, I, I do have one more. I, I just have one. Um, and it's not, yeah, it's not a big, long, it could be a big, long one. Um, like if with conversations and studies that you guys do, what, what about the impact of the U.S. dollar? And it, it's different for Americans because the world, economic world simply revolves around the dollar anyway. Whereas, as you know, if you're outside of, the U.S., then you know the FX side is is quite important. Uh, there's lots of conversations out there now. You know the dollar is going to be dethroned, or 
it's stronger than ever because other places are, are weaker. But is it something on the list or is it, it, it just not that important? Well, I'm not going to say it's not that important, but it's not something that I that really is on on my list. It, that doesn't that doesn't cross my my radar much at all. I, I'm sure there are people at the Fed thinking about this, but um, you know, I'm not really talking talking to those people. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't be able to give you anything insightful on that. Dave, where are you based? Are you based in Dallas or on the West Coast? Where Where are you? I'm in Sacramento. I'm in California now. So most of my time is spent near UC Davis, uh, which is my primary uh, appointment. And yeah, I go to Dallas quite a bit as well. Are you a 49ers fan now? No, man. I, I'm all prepared <laughs> to say it. I'm a Patriots fan. He's a Patriots fan. Oh my goodness. I forgot hey, about man. that. <laughs> Nova Scotia. And I spent I spent twelve years up in New England, uh, thirteen years in New England, and and it was during it when I moved up there. You know, the Red Sox were terrible, the Patriots were terrible, and then you know it just was this incredible shift in in uh, in the success of those four teams. It was a lot of fun to be up there at the time. But I'm a, I'm a Blue Jays fan and I'm a Patriots fan. You know, but that, that's how it happens, though. You know, in one area, and you know, the team has a lot of success. And he's a fair fun. weather fan. See, the market went one way, and you just jumped on, and you just jumped I, onto it. No, no, no. no. You, you rode it to the top, and now you'll ride it down to the. Uh, <laughs> Listen, like every I, I good sports it. fan, that's what we do. As optimistic as I am about the Blue Jays, I you know you cannot call a Blue Jays fan a fair weather fan. Like <laughs> they haven't won since what 19, 1989 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, 90, well, 93 and four, I think, or 92. And I, yeah, I those are my days. Okay, man, that was a, Rich, that was a great Rich, conversation. Do you have any parting words? Uh, I just want to say thanks. Thanks, Dave. Um, I really, really appreciate the time. And, um, and thanks for, thanks for listening. First of all, I think you're one of our, you're one of our first listeners <laughs> uh, way back when you really encouraged me to pursue this. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for the time. And uh, yeah, thank you. Hey, this has been my pleasure. I think what you guys are doing are great. I, I I try to listen every week. I learn a lot from you guys, and I think it really is a, a big public service. I, I think that that uh, the issues that you guys are discussing, people need to understand them more clearly. And there just isn't a lot of opportunity, uh, you know, a lot of conversations along the lines of what you guys are having. So you're, you're doing awesome work, and keep it up. And uh, it's really an honor that you uh, that you had me on today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dave, for the insights and and of course the you know the balanced views. I think uh, were, were terrific. So um, we look forward to having you on again here in the near future. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. So what did you say, Steve? Really good conversation. Yeah, I think um, I think I, what I really care. I, I mean, I obviously have a lot of respect for Dave, and I wish I had his CV. <laughs> but um, but I think one of the really important things for me is like you know. Dave is a markets guy. And I think that that's where we first connected and and sort of, and why I have so much respect for him. I mean, you know, he, the way he sort of sets it out and maybe he'll correct me if I'm wrong over WhatsApp, but I think, you know, what's really, the way he thinks is the best way to solve solutions is through free markets and allowing private sector to do their thing and to efficiently allocate capital in order. Uh, and then I, I would submit to you that, that that's my personal view. I mean, he made the point about poverty and how capitalism has solved poverty. I mean, I definitely believe that, you know, you know, kill me, I mean, sue me if you want to. But I think, you know, the point is to identify a problem and then 
get out of the way and let the free market sort of do its thing and try to solve it as efficiently as possible by allocating the market, allocating capital, excuse me, in the best way possible. And capital, I think capital technology. Et yes, excuse me. That's what I mean. Capital, like, you know, physical capital, financial capital, uh, labor. I mean, that's not capital, but you know what I mean? Um, I, I, I don't know, Keith, if you, if you had any thoughts, but. Uh, yeah, same thing. I mean, I'm, I mean, but I mean, I think you guys know me right now. Like, I, I, I enjoy being skeptical when it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you should be, when you should be. Um, but I, I continue to believe that policymakers today, which is a kind word for governments, have interfered so much in this conversation that it has pushed aside the private sector. Yeah, from, totally from actually agree. maximizing any solutions. For example, the whole LNG and pipeline conversation in Canada, like it's absurd. If if that was such a bad idea, let the private investors do it, let them lose billions of dollars and, and whatever. But anyway, fail, I think, exactly. yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's where we're going. Um, but anyways, it's uh, yeah. that, that's great. I can't believe, like, I, Rich, I thought we were the only friends you have, but clearly you have <laughs> other cool friends. So that's encouraging. I like to hear that. Yeah, well, uh, and, and we've still got a bit more market news to get through. Uh, you know, it's the dog days of summer. Everybody's kind of taking time off before the Vancouver event. So there's not a lot going on in the world these days. But uh, we did have an important data release this week, which was the Canada CPI data. Um you know, I think headline inflation was expected to come in. I believe it was the economists. Most of the, I think we were penciling 3%. So headline year over year CPI came in at 2.8. Uh, you know, we can get into the dynamics of that. There was, you know, a lot of angry people on Twitter saying the numbers are fake, the base effect. So we'll, we'll sort of unpack that a little bit. Um, but, you know, uh, I think we can see Rich though is like, Month over month, inflation is slowing dramatically. I think it's like 0.1%. Core has been slowing month over month. Uh, I think if you headline inflation, I know people say, well, you can't strip that. But if you stripped out mortgage interest costs, which were up 30%, uh, which is self-inflicted by the Bank of Canada, your headline CPI sits at 2. Um, and even at 2.8, you're back within that target range. So, I mean, that's my views on CPI anyways. I think that the Bank of Canada, keep in mind, I think we can all argue in the show that rate hikes haven't actually fully filtered through yet. So the fact I think that's that we're, very, you can easily say that for sure. Yeah. Right. So I think the fact that I, you know, interestingly enough that we're actually still going with rate hikes is kind of interesting. I think they've overdone it. Um, but, uh, and I think that's starting to slowly show up in the data, but we'll see. I mean, there's base effects. There's a lot of variables in the macro economy, gasoline prices, uh, what are your thoughts on that, Rich? I think I think I was reading there somewhere they said the base effects from gasoline, uh, while they may have bottomed, there's only about three more months of sort of, uh, I guess, more difficult comps, and then that will kind of go away again as well. Yeah, so I think this reminds me of something I said, probably every once in a while I say something smart. And what my point was about how you have, you know, if you jump into a lake, which I did a couple of days ago, it was lovely. You know, you don't get that the, 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 the ripple, the splashback from. But if you jump into a pool and smash your head, which I also did, um, you the water goes out, hits the edge of the pool and comes back. And I would just before politicians start congratulating themselves on this inflation thing, I would just like posit that, you know, we might still get that, you know, comeback from 
those sort of second order effects from um, energy. And you can see energy fell, the contribution from energy to headline inflation was 1%. Now that's that contribution, I know this is going to sound weird, that contribution is starting to slow. And you're, and so we'll see over, as you said, uh, Steve, over the next few months, if that contribution will turn, go from very, very positive all the way to a little bit negative, and it goes, and I think it's going to start creeping back to sort of neutrality, which is where it normally lives, which is the zero-ish. So that's the first thing. The second thing is food. I think food's really important. Obviously, it's a larger portion of your basket for a lower income person than a lar larger income person than a higher income person. It's it's more important for me than for than Keith. Obviously, you know, Keith, he gets his servant to go out buy his food or whatever it is. He doesn't care what the price is. For me, you know, it's obviously I'm definitely taking a taking a look at the sticker. And you know, food inflation is very high, and it's it's did not fall. So if you look at you know, from stores, table, so yes, the year-on-year -year numbers have fallen off the peak, but they still remain very, very high. And again, those are the basket prices. The sticker shock, I think, is, is much, probably much higher. And the other thing I think, last thing, I'm interested in what Keith has to say from Market's perspective, is shelter, your favorite, Steve. <laughs> uh, the contribution, which had fell one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe eight or nine months in a row, more or less, started, rose last month to 1.8. So I think that, and again, it's the largest chunk of the, it's 37% of the core CPI basket. And lo and behold, even though you had things like um, household operations and the, you know, the energy, like the, like the individual components and costs of running your house have fallen significantly, the rent, rented accommodation, owner accommodation, shelter component, they actually rose year, so rose month on month. And so I just, yeah. let's keep an eye on the core inflation stuff which is those three preferred measures of inflation with the boc ignored steve and and let's hold our breath a little bit yeah you know i i'd agree I, I think two things to that i think on the shelter side rents are definitely accelerating higher right now that's that's the oh, yeah, truth I forgot about that. um i would say on the housing market things have slowed dramatically i think that we're i think prices have topped out i think we're actually i, I would argue that if this pace sustains itself you could start looking at price declines you know several months out from now um, so the shelter component, again, will be an interesting story. It's always hard to calculate when you're importing a million people a year into the country. Um, <clears throat> I think the one thing I wanted to touch on, Rich, and this is not to denounce the pain that people have been feeling at the grocery stores. Um, clearly, there's been massive food acceler uh, inflation. I think we, were, we chatted about it on this show, what, 18 months ago? when food prices were like, whoa, those are going up a lot. And like stats can had food inflation, like 2% and grocery and, and restaurant uh, dining was up like, you know, 3% when everybody knew. Yeah. It peaked at 10. <laughs> Just peaked at, yeah, exactly. And, and so when I say this, it's like, it's still at nine, but like, let's also not forget how much food inflation lagged on the way up that I think it's reasonable to say, and you can actually see it now in the data that food inflation has peaked. Yeah, uh, fair enough. That's fair. It is rolling over. But it, it, it's, again, when you, people just look at the headline and say, well, food's still up 9%. But like, I, I think that was, I think there's a massive, massive lag in food inflation because we saw it on the way up and we literally did like five podcasts ripping into Stats Canada about that. Keith, do you have any thoughts? I have a couple thoughts. Your Chianti's have gone up. You're not happy. <laughs> yeah, the Chianti. Um, so 
just to come from a market perspective, and then we're related related back to the uh, the economic data and the CPI. So, so we've been building positions in both nat gas and oil over the last six months, and same with agricultural commodities. So, like corn, soy, wheat are the three main ones, with the anticipation that those prices will be bottoming. We thought Q two be the bottom, and you now we're here we are in, into Q three. And now it appears that those, you know, maybe it's like, you know, you call the bottom in the housing market, see, we didn't feel quite right at the time, but you were 100% right. And when you did for now, it. for now, that could change. We'll see. For now. Yeah. Uh, it seems like now that those markets have bottomed and now they're starting to go higher again. So they, they based over a while. Now they're starting to accelerate. So it's good for us to see because that tells us, hey, the economy is going the way that we thought it would. And that, by the way, that implies that the recession is, is, is it is coming because commodities will lead us into it. Um, but from an inflation perspective, it's likely that, you know, this could now start to ramp up again. I know the numbers may say, hey, not quite yet or, or something like that, but maybe, you know, $65, $70 oil, that was the bottom. And now we're going back up higher again. Um, if, if you're following what happened over in Ukraine or Russia over the last few days, that was been the main trigger point for wheat prices around the world to start screaming higher. And then, you know, that has a knock-on effect to the whole food chain, of course. So uh, with, with food prices, you know, maybe <laughs> it, it's already bottomed, you know. So my, my concern here is that, you know, monetary policy, it, it can't dramatically affect food and energy prices sometimes because it's more affected by supply. Um, and then the very item that it can affect, you know, it's actually causing more, more harm really in, in the CPI number. Well, I, I, so, I just, I don't just, know sorry, if I answered that correctly, but that, that's sort of what's catching our attention right now is the energy I, side and the food side. Yeah. Can I expand on that quickly? Just because you mentioned the supply side and, you know, central banks obviously think they can control the world and, and the, you know, interest rates are clearly a blunt tool, but I actually, I, I do believe they are doing damage on the supply side. So we've talked about housing. You look at the U S right. It's not just Canada. You look at the U S nobody's moving. Everyone's got, you know, 30 year fixed rates at three and a half percent. They're not moving. Um, so they've, they've, they've actually reduced housing activity to a standstill because people that are trying to buy, they can't buy because there's no inventory for, of housing available for sale. And we're seeing the exact same thing in Canada. I can give you numerous examples, but basically people that are in their homes today, a lot of them that want to move, they're stuck. Because in order for you, let's say to upsize, you typically need a larger mortgage to upsize, which means you need to qualify for it. So not only are you borrowing at 6%, but you got to qualify at the stress test of 8%. And most, a lot of people don't qualify. Uh, in fact, I would argue a lot of people that are currently in their homes don't qualify for their current homes. At an 8% stress test, they do not qualify for their home. So they can not move. And so there's, no, there's very little inventory coming to the market. Um, and so... I actually think that by raising rates this aggressively, this quickly, it's actually had um, some adverse impacts on the housing market, which were, I would say at the time, unforeseeable. Um, but that, that's what it's done. Well, I'd and, like to say tough Twinkies for the, oh, sorry, you finished, sorry. Well, no, and then, I mean, you can look at, uh, well, obviously we know what it's doing 
right now to new construction, right? The, obviously home builders have turned off the taps. I mean, the projects, a lot of them are no longer feasible. So, um, you know, BMO had a report out today that uh, residential construction investment is, was down 15% uh, year over year. And uh, it's running at its lowest levels since uh, over, over the last decade. So um, the housing taps have been turned off as the federal government immigrates a million people into this country. Okay, well, there's two things there. One is the supply for housing, which we've talked about. And obviously, that's a municipal issue, local level issue, you know, that you can obviously say that the government can act as a lever. I cite New Zealand as an example. But then the other other angle to that is that the that the Bank of Canada is not is raised too much. And I say tough Twinkies to that because before for the last 10 years, you've had real interest rates, which is the BOC main policy rate below core inflation rate and that you, you have it so if you have, have a negative in real interest rate and as you people have heard me on say on this podcast and as i've written in this looney hour Substack, negative real interest rates are a terrible thing to have for an economy in my personal view they you know they they screw over poor people it's a, it encourages misallocation of capital it encourages businesses to take on too much debt and I think finally, what we're seeing is the realization from central bankers that you cannot live in a world of um, negative real interest rates for as long as we have. And I think that we I need to we need to come to terms with the fact that it has all kinds of horrible externalities to use a, a, you know an economics term, which is all these negative adverse effects. And I think and I, I would push back on on that and say I think we should have we should maintain interest rates in real terms above inflation and leave them there. And I think, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to disagree with you that, you know, a decade of zero interest rate policy created a lot of housing issues, a lot of housing speculation. I don't disagree that there are people that need to get rinsed out and the system needs to be, be cleansed. Um, I'm just, I'm just simply noting uh, an adverse impact of, that's I fair. guess an That's unintended fair. consequence that probably has blindsided even the BOC if you watch their latest presser. They can't figure out why housing has been so resilient. And I'm telling you, the <laughs> only reason it's been resilient because people aren't moving. They're just they're stuck. And they're like literally yeah, stuck fair. if you talk to people. That's fair. And I don't mean I don't mean to be like dismissive of like real people who are getting fucked because they took too much debt and you know they can't handle it i get it you know we were told by the, the the main central bank governor that interest rates are going to be low forever i think we need to keep reminding everybody of that but i just just i guess for me it's more sort of sixty thousand feet which is where i live in the macro world top-down world and i guess it's easy for me to say that i just think real interest rates way too well, low for way too long i'll tell you what we shouldn't be doing i don't know if you guys saw jagmeet singh's interview <laughs> uh -oh. the, the orange shirt guy uh he came out and he was calling for the federal government he says that we need to be introducing mortgage subsidies uh oh, for Jesus. homeowners that are facing uh stress over rising mortgage payments uh very odd thing to suggest um but that's definitely something we should not be doing is is bailing out people that are unfortunately over levered i mean it's difficult it's it's you know there's always winners and losers unfortunately but uh, yeah i mean keith I don't know, i'm sure you have some comments on that but well i mean i i think it's you know that that's a political platform that that they have and i think it's an easy one to emphasize right now um, but it's interesting though isn't that like the ndp you would think they would kind of like more cater towards a lot of the renter base, uh, 
low lower I, interesting well it's oh, a free political view to have you know that's <laughs> bailing let's out give, you know bailing out homeowners group. that have yeah, seen it's... a decade of massive appreciation is a strange yeah. thing to do but yeah it goes back to i mean we've we've had this conversation a lot already and that you know we, we're now in this world of extremes so we went from 20 percent down to zero and then as, as you said steve they kept rates at zero for over a decade and people didn't realize that was an extreme moment you know to be alive in, in anything that's touching rates and now we're coming out of it and it's it's not it, it's it's an exponential effect every time rates get ratcheted a little bit higher it's not one for one it's literally five for one 12 for one 18 to one and you know i think people now are starting to appreciate and understand that you know something will you know sort of go snap here in in the middle of the night and i don't think it's any way to, to stop this and that's where we're going man we're still kind so of waiting take advantage that. of it there's there's ways to make money yeah there's always ways what's the next catalyst always always me i mean the big thing right now of course like in my world everyone's focused on you know commercial real estate and, and all the debt attached to it and uh like there's a lot of pretty large funds out there they're already accumulating their capital they're just waiting for this to fall and of course if it if it does then you you get another knock-on effect from it and then another one from that and, and onward so it doesn't mean it has to happen but you know the the most vulnerable part of markets right now it, in our view you know it doesn't mean we're going to be right but it, it is it is credit markets anything that's sort of high yielding in in that space See, like a lot of corporate debt yeah i mean there's a there's a ton of debt but you get a knock-on effect as soon as any as soon as one part of the credit markets get hit then it'll immediately get you know rippled through to the next layer and then the next layer and you know things are things are stretched pretty high here right now look even equity markets i mean everyone knows that story this year they're, they're stressed pretty high uh if anyone follows like the demark indicators or models you know they're at the count now where hey this this is over overbought sentiment is is quite high so you know we, we could get a uh you know a bit of a sell-off taking place here right now in in risk off markets uh today is thursday for everyone so like the dollar is just ripping higher here now uh today and you know most equities are, are softish but again like we were in this extreme world so everyone should get ready you know for well, that. that's what I think so just dovetailing on that that's why I think what's so weird about what's been going on is that even though the markets I mean we bounced off that 3600 level uh in 2022 which was the 200 week moving average and we smashed right through 4,500 on the back of basically U.S. tech. I'm talking about U.S. markets right now. U.S. tech and a bunch of other stuff that's done well. Um, and and yet spreads over AAA rated spreads. So this is investment grade um, investment grade spreads. So this is the way that you would think about credit risk um, and in some cases stress. They haven't come down at all. So even as the market's gone higher and higher, you know the the, the ratings on these corporate bond spreads hasn't come down so if you look at triple b it's the same thing they're as basically as high as they were in mid 2022 um you know you've high yield haven't come in at all really since again mid 2022 so it's interesting how you have that disconnect basically between the equity and, and and corporate credit 
and those this, those disconnects don't usually last forever. So it will, will be interesting over the next little while what happens. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap this week's show up. Um, you know, um, looking forward to seeing everybody here in Vancouver, July 27th. And for all our Albertans, we'll see you in Calgary on July 29th. Uh, Keith, it's going to be a bender week, buddy. I know it's going to be fun, especially the, you know, kiss rich night. I can't wait for that event. No, oh man. Like the Chianti's, the Chianti's <laughs> How much will be, be charging? I think whatever price it is, we need to increase it. <laughs> I'm not that desperate. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking hour. forward to the Vancouver night. It'll be fun, man. Looney hour, ticket, bar. Looney hour ticket prices have actually been falling. I, you know, some call that outright deflation. Uh, is that right? No, uh, no that's know. not right. All right. Well, we'll uh, appreciate the support as always and see you at the event.